Welcome to Inspired Money, the live stream podcast featuring inspiring money stories and inspiring lifestyles. Together, we'll learn to make more, give more, and live more. For an interactive experience, join us live at youtube.com slash inspired money every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Inspired Money is co-created by Runnymede Capital Management and Eagles Vision Creative Collaborative Media Design. We are live in three, two, one. Aloha, Inspired Money Makers. I'm Andy, your host and financial advisor at Runnymede Capital Management. Welcome back to Inspired Money, the live stream podcast. It's that time of year when we reflect on what are the things that we've accomplished over this year, and very likely, it's also a time where we set goals and make resolutions for the new year. In that light, it's the perfect time to discuss investing in your health, the intersection of wellness and wealth. In our quest for a happy, purposeful, and impactful life, balance is not just a luxury, it's a necessity. Health and wealth are profoundly interconnected. I mean, what is good wealth if it's not enjoyed in good health? And conversely, how can we fully embrace health without the stability and opportunities that financial well-being provides? Today, we're going to explore how good health is not just about fewer doctor visits or avoiding expensive treatments. It's about enriching the quality of your life in every aspect. We often focus on physical health, but let's not forget the other pillars. There's mental health, spiritual health, and of course, financial health. Together, they form the foundation of true well-being. And as we live longer, thanks to medical advancements, this is going to impact our investments and our financial planning. So today, we're going to discuss healthcare trends and what they mean for investors. Let's dive in and discover how we can harmoniously align our health and wealth for a richer, more fulfilling life. I want to welcome in our panelists. And we've got a brilliant group this evening. Let me start by introducing Michelle Seeger. She's an award-winning NIH-funded researcher at the University of Michigan, has almost 30 years experience in sustainable exercise adoption. Her best-selling book, No Sweat, and her latest work, The Joy Choice, was named one of the best health books in 2022 by the Washington Post. And they showcase her brain-based approach to lasting behavior change in eating and exercise. These are things that we really need, I think, at this time of year, sustainability. I really look forward, Michelle, to learning about the joy choice. But before we get into it, your bio says that you ran with the Olympic torch at the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. What was that like? It was really exciting. Um, and it was such an honor to be chosen. I, I was working for the Olympic Committee at the time. Um, but believe it or not, it was really hard. That, that what felt very light at the beginning became very heavy by the end of that kilometer. And I assumed that you must be an athlete, but I read a blog post that said, that's not the case. That's, that is correct. And if my husband heard you call me an athlete, he would laugh. Um, no, I'm a physically active person. I started 
my activity when I was uh, 13 and I enjoy jogging at this stage in life. I'm a walker, but no, I am not an athlete. And thank you for suggesting Manisha Takor be invited. She's an MBA, CFA, CFP, also founder of Money Zen, a financial well-being consultancy. She brings over 25 years of experience in various roles within the financial services industry as a nationally renowned advocate of women's financial literacy. She empowers individuals through keynote speaking, brand ambassadorship, and corporate consulting, offering a joy-based approach known as Money Zen to foster calm, confidence, and clarity around money. Manisha says that today's topic is among one of her favorites. I also hear that you love artisanal coffee. What's your favorite? Well, I live in Portland, Oregon, because when I got divorced uh, eight years ago at age 45, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I had divorce brain. So I decided to uh, go west, and I picked my uh, new residence by visiting a bunch of different cities based on the density of third wave coffee houses per capita. So I hit Barcelona. Uh, Boulder, Seattle, Portland, and I think Portland has the absolute best third wave coffee. And my drink of choice right now is a 5.5 ounce cappuccino. Portland has amazing food trucks too. Oh, yes. Next up, we have Toby Amador. She's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, spokesperson, and founder of Toby Amador Nutrition. She's authored 10 books including the Family Immunity Cookbook, the Best Three Ingredient Cookbook, with her 10th up, uh, up, your, up Your Veggies. We all need to up our veggies, which was released in October of 2023. Toby's a trusted nutrition expert for foodnetwork.com and has her own Ask the Network column in today's Dietitian Magazine. Toby, what kind of adventures have you had as a nutrition expert for Food Network? Um, well, I've been there for about 16 years and I've worked with their healthy eating blog. I'm founding the contributor for that one. So I've been able, I've been blessed to be able to work on some of the shows. I've worked on uh, Not My Mama's Meals, a couple of uh, Bobby Dean show for a couple of seasons. Um, yeah, I've debunked a lot, a lot of myths over the years. So it's been, it's been really fun um, in that respect. Well, I look forward to having you on the panel I know that I can use guidance on healthier eating. So with ladies first, we'll finish up with Mike, Mike Taylor, Mike T, following a personal health crisis. Mike left his beloved hedge fund trading desk to embrace a more balanced life. He launched the Simply Healthcare ETF Pink. With over two decades of Wall Street experience, he manages the first 100% pro bono ETF dedicated to the healthcare sector, annually donating net profits to the Susan G. Komen Foundation, showcasing a commitment to financial acumen and philanthropy. Mike T, it's so good to see you again. Thank you so much. If you see right behind me, I have our uh, check. Uh, it's the big fake check. And uh, we presented this to the Susan Komen Foundation uh, in the fall. And I'm very happy to be here. You had a great, your reel coming into this was fantastic. 
uh, great uh, intro reel. That was really something. Well, welcome and, uh, back to Inspired Money. Last time you were here, we did not have all of this or as many panelists as we do today. Yeah, and so you are correct. I've, I've, uh, I ran a healthcare hedge fund for most of my career and I've been doing the pink now for two years uh, and it's gone very well. I'm really happy with the results and uh, the, the overwhelming support. It's um, It's been pretty surprising because I did not know how it would go and it's been well beyond what I ever dreamt. So thank you again for having me. You're a great investor and it's for a great cause. So a powerful combination. Well, I'm excited to have all of this brain power here on this episode. Let's jump right into segment one. Welcome to our exploration of the profound link between health and wealth. Imagine your physical well-being shaping your financial future. Investing in health goes beyond fitness. It's a strategic step toward financial growth. Regular exercise, balanced nutrition, and mental wellness are not just beneficial for our bodies and minds, but also catalyze increased productivity and sharper decision-making. This leads to excelling at work and smart financial decisions. But it goes beyond just earning more. Embracing a healthier lifestyle significantly cuts down healthcare costs. Fewer sick days and chronic disease management translate to tangible financial benefits. Mental health is equally crucial. A well-maintained mind brings clarity and focus, essential in the world of financial planning. Stress and anxiety can cloud judgment, but a balanced mind aids in making sound investments and securing a future. In conclusion, health is indeed wealth. Each step towards better health is a stride towards financial stability. Join us as we delve into this dynamic relationship, guiding you towards a harmonious life of wellness and wealth. So Manisha, please get us started because tell us how two near-death experiences got you to rethink your personal life, your professional life, and that the idea of your self-worth is not your net worth. Yeah, as I approached age 50, this was three years ago, I had the second of two near-death health experiences. And this second one resulted in my having to take a nine-month leave of absence from work. I was able to stay awake about five to six hours a day. And it was a nine-month experience. Um, and what I won't get into the details of the specific health issues that I was having, but what I came to realize was that I had generated an enormous amount of financial health and I was emotionally bankrupt. I was physically, mentally, uh, spiritually completely empty. And I decided to go on a two-year research journey to understand how did things go so wrong that <laughs> I had such high hopes for my life and career, and how did I end up a human doing and not a human being? And the one thing I'll say as it relates to this topic is that there are many interesting things along the way, but there's a study many of us on this panel have heard, which is about 10 years old now, and it says that earnings beyond $75,000 won't make us happy. And a lot of people rolled their eyes at that if they lived on the coast or in a high uh, cost city. And uh, the, the researchers decided to go back and take another look at the study this year. And lo and behold, they discovered, yes, uh, even inflation adjusted, that number is not right. 
or the study is not right, but it's not right because the number is wrong. It's because for each one of us, there is a number and it's different for each one of us beyond which if we do not have a base of overall well-being, increased money does not lead to increased life satisfaction. That was my experience. And now I'm committed to try and help as many people not make the mistakes that I did. Mike, you told me that the hardest part about wealth is lasting to enjoy it. Can you share a little bit about how your health scare changed your outlook? Uh, yeah, I've spent it all. And no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I had a, um, well, mine was uh, really a roll of the dice, an autoimmune condition that, uh, that had a pretty profound impact. Uh, which I've recovered uh, largely from with the aid of uh, medicine and a lot of science. And uh, it is very difficult. And I can see this. And now that we're all around 50 years old, we are, we, we, our parents are, many of them have passed away. Uh, they're aging. And we're witnessing that right now where do you get to enjoy the back half? And it, in many cases, it's a roll of the dice, uh, but that's only about half of it. The other half of it is how you treat yourself. And that requires uh, a discipline and a change of heart for many. Uh, you know, I applaud the ones that are healthy all the way through, and there are many that are, but there are many that aren't. And myself as a medical person, um, the, the biggest threat that you can do something about is, uh, is your weight. And whether you exercise or don't exercise too much, um, it's actually the weight that gets you. Uh, and though they, they tie that to cancer and things like that, um, that's what I'd recommend for everybody is to sincerely watch your weight. And if you have great difficulty, do it. There are, now there are meaningful medical solutions to get you there that are non-surgical. And uh, the results are uh, profound. And um, as a medical person, though, I, I know many are against medicating because they feel that that is a bad thing or a sign of weakness or what have you. Uh, the numbers are sincere. They are frank and they are sanguine that um, uh, with medical, uh, take your medicine, uh, heart disease, uh, hypertension, diabetes and excess weight. And if you can avoid those issues you have a much better chance to enjoy your wealth later in life. So two of you have had very, like very motivated by health scares or health issues. I want to ask Michelle, because 30 years ago, had a research study showed that the health care often is not enough to motivate people. Right. Well, you know, it's very interesting because before um, my data suggested that health as a motivator might not be optimal for exercising in sustainable ways. I went into that study thinking health would be a fantastic, intrinsically motivating reason to exercise. But the data suggested that the people who exercised over a year um, did had uh, worse uh, motivational quality uh, than people who are exercising to improve their daily quality of life. And so um, that was 
confusing and disturbing until I started looking more deeply into other science and the reasons why health as a primary motivator for making a change might not drive sustainable change. But I wanna, I wanna stop there to just connect back to the things that Manisha and Mike said. We, sometimes people have acute situations that are so life impacting that they you know, shake people to the core and, and, and really drive people to wanna take care of themselves in different, in, in more profound, sustainable ways. But I would say that's more of an outlier than is common for um, other people or maybe people who haven't had quite as profound as, as a health event. Because for the most part in healthcare over decades, we're going on over four decades now, health, even people who've had a heart attack and other types of serious um, illnesses and events, it doesn't drive sustainable changes for the most part. Now, there's some, nothing is ever true for everyone. So for some people, a health event will motivate them to drastically change their life. But from my read of the literature over four decades and just being a person living um, in society and talking to clinicians of all types, most people don't stick with the health um, promoting changes that would improve their um, both their physical health, but also their daily quality of life. So I'm going to open the floor to hear what other people have to say about that. Well, I'll suggest that inertia is a hard thing to overcome, mathematically proven. <laughs> so it is very, very challenging for the people that change their lives. And it's a matter of time, energy, commitment, distraction, and uh, all those other things. Um, but I, I encourage everyone around me, especially, um, I mean, for instance, I, I went on to, um, I'm one of the gang who's on a GLP-1 class drug now, and it's had a almost immediate profound impact on my life. And about 95% of patients tolerate it very well. And it, is, it has had a meaningful impact on my life. And I'm really, I'm proud to say that. Now, do I have to be on this uh, the rest of my life to maintain this benefit? Not exactly, but I probably will be on it to some degree for, uh, for probably the rest of my life. And honestly, I don't mind because I have a, a great tolerability. And, and that's one of the beauties uh, of American healthcare, if you will, um, it's imperfect. It just happens to be really, really, really good. Um, and, and that the uh, drugs uh, are available, maybe not at a cost that's acceptable to everybody or even approachable to everybody. And that's one of the imperfections. But if you can afford it and you are um, overweight uh, and, and maybe leaning towards a diabetes, uh, these are one of the solutions. And the, the hardest part is to get off the couch and do it. And, and that's how I encourage everyone to do. And I think that's really all that we can do is live by example and show. Because this is really a word of mouth activity. There's no mandate to, that we can force people to be more healthy. We can only encourage them and give them a kind hand out to give them help to get there. Well, I, I, I just want to jump in because I, I think what Mike is saying 
is so important. What you, you said, Mike, it, it's about the weight. Um, we have an obesity crisis in, increasingly across the globe. And no matter how financially sound we are as a society, if, if we don't address that, um, as humans, we're not going to be happy. I, too, am on a GLP-1 um, oh. uh, medication. It has transformed my I'm life. Out now. Kudos to um, you. Kudos to you. I would like to suggest that a very low-cost way for people to understand the impact of what both Mike and Michelle are saying is to read a book by a professor named Ben Bickman called Why We Get Sick. And he talks about how insulin resistance, which is a result of uh, obesity, um, leads to a cascade of other potential fatal uh, conditions. And so, you know, it, th there's so many different pieces of this. So I just want to emphasize what Mike is saying is so true. And I never would have thought I would take a medicine to help lower my A1C and get everything under control. It's been life-changing, but what's also been life-changing is Ben Michelle's book and her concept of the joy choice. And talking about motivation for getting off the couch, um, uh, and Toby jump into, I don't mean to monopolize, but Michelle's joy choice is something that I think would be really interesting for us to highlight here. Um, in terms of, you know, if you can exercise, Michelle, what, how did, how did you get me off the couch? Well, the, the concept of the joy choice, it's a, it's a branded concept in, Basically, the research suggests that when, when with and Toby, feel free to disagree with me if the research um, or the literature that you know dis, um, uh, contradicts what I'm going to say. But my read of the behavioral literature, um, both for um, eating and exercise, suggests that when we aim for perfection with our decision making around what we eat and how we move our bodies, that most people can't achieve that consistently. And the, and what the research shows is that when people come to their decision points where they're trying to follow a way of eating or whether they're trying to exercise in a certain way with a flexible mindset that lets them have wiggle room and pivot and not try to be perfect, that that um, behavioral strategy is actually um, better associated with decision making around these things. So getting back to Manisha's question, the joy choice, I branded the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing as the joy choice. Um, let's bring marketing into our promotion of health behaviors like exercise and healthy eating so that we can better engage people. My, Mike, you talked about inertia. That's absolutely true. But I, with my, my research suggests that one of the reasons why people feel this much inertia and maybe a disdain for trying to um, adopt healthier eating or exercise is because society has socialized us to think about these behaviors more in medicalized ways instead of ways that we can cultivate our mental health and our sense of well-being and our energy levels and our presence for our families um, and focus at work. And so I think part of the shift, and it's it, it probably is complementary, it isn't necessarily 
contradictory to taking a medication, but I think we need a mindset shift in society about what these behaviors can do for us. And I'm looking at Toby to hear what. Yeah, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback off that. And first, I'll say go blue because my son is graduating this year. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, but I completely agree, and that's why you see the U.S. News top diets. Not that I'm for any diets, but flexitarian is up there as the top three. I think probably the top one. It'll tie as number two or one this year again. Um, but that's a huge problem with diets. So people, it's very, some people make very specific diet plans. People think they need to follow it. Then they feel that guilt and then they're not good enough. And falling off the wagon is something that is a natural process because we are not perfect. That's why I love the imperfect, perfect, you know, that's, that's actually perfect. But I want to shift it also. Uh, there's so many points I can make to all of you, but I, I one other point I do want to make that we have to keep in mind, social media has become a center of most of our lives, especially the millennial Gen Z populations. And think about who you are following, the imagery you're getting of perfection mm -hmm. in terms of the bodies that are working out, the bodies that are considered by this society as perfect. Is it really perfect or should you unfollow those people so you don't feel the guilt that you're not that body? And guess what? Most of us aren't and most of us are not built that way and you're beautiful how you are. So there certainly is a behavioral component to this, a mental health component. There could be medication component to this as well in and I have to I do have to chime in with the medications. It's very important to take them, but it doesn't mean and this is I've seen this from clients in the past that you give up your healthy eating and your other mindfulness techniques and your self techniques and your sleep and everything else. There's there's a whole slew that is just part of the picture. Like I've seen people say, OK, I'm going to lose weight. Let's go, for example, on Ozempic, right? That was a big thing. Or now they have some, uh, berry bean is there, is a more naturalistic one. But that doesn't mean you leave all your healthy habits aside. If you're so motivated to do that, you know, there's a lot you can actually do with just looking at food, with looking at your mind and internally, um, exercise, et cetera. So there's a full picture here, I think, with all of us in here. I am not on a GLP one. I am Chinese American. So... In my 51 years, I, I, I guess I'm blessed with a good metabolism so far. But I want to ask Toby, can you walk us through your create your plate method? Because I want to know what our plates should look like through the holidays and then going into 2024. Sure. So the create your plate was actually developed by the American Diabetes Association. I have actually two cookbooks on that. Um, it can be used for someone with prediabetes or can be used by any healthy individual too. It doesn't matter really. Um, so what you do is you have a plate. So you have your plate, half your plate should be, and this is why it's for folks with diabetes, um, low, low carb veggies. And that's to help with um, um, blood sugar control. So it can be if you want um, spinach, kale, carrots, broccoli, cauliflower, tomato, and that all goes on on half your plate. Then a quarter of the plate is for carb-based food. So um, it could be if you want a starchy vegetable, like a potato, you want quinoa, you want brown rice, you want uh, a fruit or uh, yogurt, that would all go because that has about 12 to 15 grams of carbs. So that's in a quarter of the plate. The other quarter of the plate um, is then for protein, for lean protein. And then a healthy fat like avocado, a little olive oil when cooking, a vinaigrette made out of a healthy oil, and a lower no calorie beverage on the side. So that's really what um, the diabetes plate method is, uh, is about. 
That's that's great. I want to go to segment two. In today's fast-paced world, self-care is essential, but it need not be expensive. Embracing affordable wellness practices can be both fulfilling and financially savvy. Physical activity is the cornerstone of wellness. Options like home workouts, yoga, or brisk walking offer fitness without financial strain. Integrating these into your daily routine can boost both physical and mental health. Nutrition plays a key role. Eating healthy on a budget is achievable through smart choices like meal planning and buying seasonal produce. Cooking at home not only saves money but also ensures a healthier diet. Mental wellness, equally important, can be nurtured through mindfulness and meditation. Free resources, including apps and online videos, offer easy access to these practices. Additionally, journaling serves as an inexpensive yet effective tool for mental clarity and emotional processing. Social interactions enhance wellness too. Engaging in community activities or volunteering can enrich your life, creating a sense of connection and purpose. Remember, self-care is an investment in your well-being. With these budget-friendly strategies, maintaining a holistic wellness routine becomes accessible and manageable for everyone. So, Toby, especially during the pandemic, everybody was cooking at home more, and certainly that can be cheaper. Your three-ingredient cookbook. I like that it's simple and easy. Can you talk a little bit about, like, how do we cook at home so that it's easier and we can keep it keep it going? So my style for all ten, and I have an eleventh one coming out too. I just finished writing it on health tonics, actually. Um, so my You're ten are created. <laughs> yeah, um, they're created to be simple ingredients you can find and afford. So I don't have to find them crazy on the internet. So I can find them at my local supermarkets. Um, and they're made to be done not within hours, but within 30 minutes, 45 minutes, like short period of time, because we all have a hustle and bustle. And we actually, you know, we savor every moment and we can't figure out what to do in every moment. So something usually slides. And there's actually a study um, that shows that people who try to fit in both exercise and like cooking at home, they, they usually one goes for the other. Like you, you just can't get it all done. Um, and so doing things, I have three meal prep cookbooks, doing things like meal prep, or I, I icon a lot of these recipes as freezer friendly or one pot dish or 30 minutes or less, or the three ingredient is basically using just fewer ingredients, but still making delicious foods. And I actually did create the three ingredient one during the height of the pandemic where there weren't even vaccinations and you had to go with masks. I couldn't even find all the food. Like I would have to go to several supermarkets. So I ended up shopping for like a lot of recipes, 20, 30 at once, just so I could um, not go into the supermarket so many times during the pandemic. But I mean, the, the cooking those recipes were made for my son who's in college who didn't learn while I was testing the recipes. My girls know how to cook everything. My son wasn't in the kitchen. Um, so they're made for people living alone, living one or two people, um, you know, just don't really love cooking and just want a couple of quick and easy uh, meals or just anyone who just wants something fast. Um, and I have the recipes, they're translated for like two, four, six people. And then they're also, um, 
basically I'll write, let's say milk, and then I'll make a healthier selection or, you know, bread, and then I'll make a healthier selection under Toby's tips. So you can healthify it or make it a little bit healthier for you. The book's um, premise really was just to help people get in the kitchen and cook a little. So nutrition analysis purposely isn't there because I didn't want to start confused. I just wanted them to cook. I really, you know, just get your hands dirty in the kitchen. Manisha, over your circuitous career path, because you've been involved in the institutional side of money management, now you've transitioned more to um, working with individuals and families. You credit the connections and relationships you've made along the way. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to young people that I'm mentoring is that uh, your future income stream is one of your biggest assets and the people that you meet along the way, don't forget to invest time in, in them. It will help your career, which will help your financial health, but those connections will also help build your emotional wealth. And what I've noticed is that we've become so transactional oftentimes in our relationships um, just think about it. We change jobs now every two to three years. And oftentimes we keep in touch with former coworkers via LinkedIn for a year. And then we're off to our new office family. And when I was doing the research to figure out how I ended up emotionally bankrupt, I spoke with a woman who ran a hypertension center at the University of, of Colorado. And one of the things that she observed, I found fascinating the individuals who followed all the healthy activities that we're talking about here and managed to get their hypertension under control almost always subconsciously were following a formula that is her mantra. Um, her name is Mary Laverde, and the mantra is connection creates balance. And the idea is when you feel discombobulated in any way, mentally, physically, spiritually, ask yourself, in this moment, to who or what do I need to connect to move incrementally closer to feeling better? And I think that our Surgeon General says right now we are suffering a loneliness epidemic in this country. And I think connection can help us both increase financial health and emotional wealth. And it's low cost. <laughs> I love that. I, I agree entirely about that uh, loneliness situation. Uh, I think that that's uh, one of the products of sort of social media and everyone online all the time. They don't actually have, as my son would call it, IRL relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you on here, that it's in real life. I was recently informed. That's what that means. <laughs> and and that's a big deal. And I would concur with Manisha. Um, please develop IRL relationships. You will smile a heck of a lot more. Mike, you're a hell of a good investor trader. You don't appear to me to be like a self-care guy, are you? What does self-care mean? By your, just your definition, I'm, I'm sorry. For me, self-care means actually taking time not to think about companies, earnings reports, what's going on in the financial markets, and like taking time for yourself what in whatever form that means. Well, 
part of the success in running a hedge fund um, is that you are, generally speaking, not wired like other people. Uh, and, and I'm certain that I was not. Uh, my guys on my desk would ask me, like, okay, you made a lot of money. When are you going to retire? When do you put this away? Because people, many who run a hedge fund dream of that. And I always told them, look, my goal is to exit this desk in a body bag because it's my happiest place on earth. I love the puzzle of investing and figuring out uh, success stories and frauds, uh, hopefully before everyone else does, and, and betting on it and moving on. And I just love the challenge of doing so. So uh, self-care, uh, stepping back and paying attention to those sort of things for me, um, my self-care really was doing what I love, which is this. Uh, so I'm, uh, and I know that I am a rarity and that I can just keep going and going and going and find great joy from it. Um, but one thing that has changed greatly over the past eight years, and especially over the past four years, and I want to thank all of you investors out there that have reached out to me, because as, uh, up until 2020, I was under a CDA for 20 years, essentially, where I could not talk or interact with the public. And I didn't realize how lonely I was interacting with my very small group of super experts. And that's it. And that was my world. And it's only been since I'm out of the CDA and I can interact with the rest of the world that has opened my eyes entirely to uh, the psyche that I didn't even know existed. And I thought I knew what existed until I was out of that CDA and I could interact with actual real people that aren't Wall Street super specialists. I, I didn't, that's the whole part of being in a bubble. You don't realize you're in the bubble until you're out. And I'm very, very pleased to be out of that bubble. Don't get me wrong. I still want to exit this world in a body bag with <laughs> desk, okay? So some things never change, but I have much greater joy being a step outside of that bubble. Can't so I was right having trouble envisioning you doing yoga. I've been invited. <laughs> That's the first step. Can, can I make a comment about self-care? Um, so Mike is is really lucky because he is he has a lot of self-awareness about what caring for himself is and what the most important ingredient um, of that is for him. But in society, we have been taught there are so many ways to take care of ourselves. There's healthy eating, there's exercise, there's meditation, there's getting enough sleep and on and on and on. And I, I think for many people, they don't have the same kind of self-awareness that Mike knows for himself. And so they feel like they need to do everything and often at the same time. Um, and that is just a recipe if you want to take care of yourself behaviorally in new ways and you try to do too much at once. In fact, Toby mentioned a study, I think, where you said that people who tried to exercise and change their eating, that one thing, you know, had to go or the other. And so I think we I, I think we need to help people understand that it might be more adaptive if people choose one behavior 
to focus on, to learn, to master, to become consistent with the one behavior that maybe um, they most feel like Manisha said, find the connection that you need right now. What is that? In the same way, what is potentially the behavior that could most help people renew and fuel themselves? And then focus on that instead of feeling like you're not doing enough because you're not doing everything. I would also encourage for that wealth and health, something that gets overlooked so often is, is your occupation. And I, I, I believe that perhaps a majority of individuals are in a job that they don't love. And I'll give you an example, my dad, my dad worked as a Wall Street credit analyst for his entire life out of on Wall Street. And he'd commute in every day and go out and whenever he had free time, any free time, every weekend, he was gardening. He was a gardener coming from many generations of gardening. And when he retired, he started a landscaping and gardening consultancy. He makes more money now than when he did on Wall Street. And I'm like, what the hell were you doing, Dad? You hated your job. And he was vocal about it. But he did it because he didn't want to take the risk of going out on his own and doing something that he loved. And now that he had nothing to lose at 65 years old, he goes out and he does it. And he's more profitable and happier now doing what he always wanted to do. Why didn't you start that sooner? It was because he was afraid. He's 80 now, and he will be out there landscaping and gardening in 95 degree heat for 12 hours. Doesn't think a thing about it. By the way, if you ever run into him on a tennis court, don't play. You're going to get toasted, that poor guy. <laughs> no, I play him tennis. He plays people that are sub <laughs> 50 years old, okay? So that's, that's it. Uh, but that, I think that is something to live by. Uh, really, and I would encourage everyone, write down your list of things that you love, a big list, write 15 things down, circle the top five and figure out how you can do a career doing that. And I don't care what it is, like in there, you will find something that you can, you can occupy yourself in a career doing something that you love and, and take that risk and do it independent of your age, because as all of you know, and I know, and especially those that had brushes with death, you only get to do this once every time. It's not like, oh, I'll do it next time. There is no next time. So you better go big now because our life is measured in days, not years. You know, there, uh, what M Mike is talking about, I think is so powerful. I know when I look back, at my earnings trajectory, what screams at me is when I've made the most money, I've been doing things that I would have done for free because I loved them so much. And so I, I felt joy. And the periods of my life where I made the least money was when I was doing jobs I didn't like that I felt I should be doing. And I want to, for anybody who right now is listening to this and thinking, well, I don't have as much energy as Mike and his dad, you know, I'm, I, I, how do I think about work in a healthy way to make sure that I'm making enough, but I, I don't want to be that interested in it. I learned about a concept 
because I'm a classic workaholic, um, filling my you know, childhood wounds with work uh, to try and find self-esteem, which is never a good recipe, that the difference between workaholism and somebody like Mike or Mike's dad, who Mike and Mike's dad are engaging in, in what uh, experts would call workaholism experts, which that's now a field, <laughs> positive work engagement, which means it doesn't matter how many hours, maybe it's 12 hours a day, maybe it's four hours a day. And however long it is, that's not important. What's important is when you're working, you're working in flow. But when you're not working, you are completely disconnected. And even if you're not working, period, is a very short amount of hours in the day by being present in the, those minutes and hours, you are rejuvenating yourself in a way that keeps you from falling into a workaholic bucket. So when I hear people say like, I can't see myself stop working and they're genuinely smiling, not running away from something, it's because like Mike and his dad, they have positive work engagement. Well, we don't call it work. Right. And I'll just piggyback on Manisha. Um, basically, when I, because I do most of my work at home. So when I want to um, kick back, when I'm at home, I see my work and I feel like I'm not disengaging from it a lot of times. And I'm not one really to sit in front of the TV. So that's why I, I will play your dad in tennis. But I do play. <laughs> I captain and I <laughs> play on a full handful of, of competitive tennis teams. So, you know, that's kind of like my social life and my um, but it has to be out of the house. Like when I do my exercise classes, I have one gym where I do it. It's spin or tennis. It's out of the house. And that's a way that my mind is outside of the work. My stress a little bit alleviates that way. And then I can also have a social environment like that. So you have to reflect on like your own life and what works for you and try if, if it's a different room or one room you're working in, whatever, you know, works for you best. Powerful stuff. Let's go to segment three. In our journey towards a healthier future, understanding preventive health care is pivotal. It's the key to maintaining health and preventing serious diseases before they escalate. Routine care, such as medical and dental checkups, cancer screenings, and vaccinations play a crucial role in ensuring long-term well-being. Let's break down the levels of prevention. Primary prevention involves steps taken before disease occurs, like healthy lifestyle choices and vaccinations. Secondary prevention focuses on early disease detection and treatment, while tertiary prevention aims to manage and slow disease progression. These layers of care work together to safeguard our health. The importance of preventive health care escalates with age. By 2050, the U.S. will see a significant increase in the population over 65 years old, making preventive measures more critical than ever. Regular health checkups and understanding one's family health history become vital components of a long-term health strategy. Moreover, preventive health care is a cost-effective approach. Investing in regular healthcare measures can save substantial amounts in the long run by avoiding expensive medical treatments for advanced diseases. Finally, lifestyle choices form the foundation of preventive healthcare. A balanced diet, regular exercise, and mental well-being are essential to maintaining overall health and preventing chronic diseases. By embracing preventive healthcare, we invest in our future of longevity, vitality, and financial stability. 
Kobe, I want to ask you about nutrition because no doubt nutrition contributes to preventive health care. Does one's diet, like, should it change as you get older? Like, should my kids be eating something different from me or no, is it just all. binary? It, you should be, and the dietary guidelines really did a nice job in 2020 to 2025, really going through the life cycle and encouraging um, healthy choices uh, from the beginning. Um, and that's really what it's all about. We don't, yes, we need some nutrient differences through the different stages of our life, but it's, you really should be teaching your children to cook. They should be having healthy eating habits. Like when I would, my, my kid was one or nine months old, one, two, I would put them in the, in the cart and just talk about the different colors of the fruits and vegetables. And then as they progressed and got older, they were able to pin, you know, pick the ones they like to when now when they're te now they're yeah teenagers, um, they can actually select and check if they're you know good if it, you know let can you select three good apples for me or whatnot. So I'm able to teach them in that manner through their lives in terms of the cooking techniques. And my daughter, we would play a game: how many foods are in your uh, how many food groups are in your meal to showcase that you should have at least four food groups in a meal if not more, if not all of them, but she, she would say, oh, I have a dairy, I have a fruit, I have a vegetable. Okay, this is at least three. Oh, and I have a carb too, so I'm at four. So that's a good meal, mom. So at least I can show her the varied uh, food groups. We would do this for snacks as well. Um, so just playing, you know, fun games like that with kids through their life and teaching them um, is definitely techniques. And no, you are not a short order cook. You're not making for your children something, you something, and then you know, if you have someone else, there's something at the dog is something else. The dog maybe is on a different diet, but <laughs> uh, everybody, you know, does, should be eating the same thing. Now, food allergies are differences or health conditions, but you can still have a family meal, even if one person is living with diabetes, that shouldn't stop anything. Michelle, you've done some really interesting work on food and like how we make choices around our behavior around that. While we're doing some research right now in trying to help people adopt uh, healthier eating to reduce uh, colon cancer risk. And so when we were designing the app, and we don't have the findings yet, we just have engagement data, which are looking really great, but we wanted to be very clear that we weren't focusing, actually, we really tried to avoid the word health. We tried to avoid any connection to weight whatsoever. And we wanted people to think about reasons for adopting this new way of eating. And they may have joined the study because they knew their health risks for colon cancer. But we, regardless of that, we were, we've been trying to shift the way they think about their decision making. So that they try to align it with um, uh, the things that are meaningful to them, the people they care about having energy for. So, Manisha, that might be what you're what you're talking exactly. about. Mm -hmm. And and I want to piggyback too on Toby's comment about family communicating about decision making. How, I don't even want to call it health related decision making, self care related decision making. And the more we can articulate, whether it's teaching our kids at different stages, like Toby's done such a great job of doing, you know, colors, food groups. When you talk, when you're in a, at a decision point, which we all are, so many times a day that add up to millions of times over a lifetime. How do we model 
these flexible, flexitarian food choices, these flexible ways of thinking about moving our bodies. And we, by saying it out loud, gosh, I was hoping to, you know, I had a plan to go to the gym, but I had this urgent work-related thing and I, I only had 13 minutes. And so guess what I did, kids? And, you know, make it into a gamer story. I took a walk outside. I went up and down the steps. I turned on music and danced. So by articulating and talking about now, the reality is, is that I would say most many of, of us grownups might not even think that way because we haven't been taught to think in more flexible ways. But the more awareness we can bring to it for ourselves and then that extra level for modeling and socializing the people around us, then we can have that much of a greater impact on others. Mike, as a healthcare investor, do you see areas in the healthcare sector that align with preventive care? Honestly, the, it's very difficult for any drugs to be developed for preventative care. Uh, the nearest thing to it, meaning that you don't take a hypertension drug until you have hypertension. Uh, you don't take a cancer drug until you have cancer. And so, so far as preventative, um, there's, I think there is nothing that has ever been developed for preventative care. Uh, just because the mechanism to get through the FDA, you have to have an indication. And an indication means that you have a problem, inherently not preventative, but reactionary. So uh, all that I can, I can beat the drum on the GLP-1s is that that's the nearest thing there is to preventative care in truly the prevention of diabetes, hypertension, that is now in the data that uh, as of this summer in a large study, they showed that uh, it prevents the onset of all of these things. And we'll probably see a lot more of that, but it's not really that you have to take a GLP-1 to get that effect. It's that you simply need to, to lose weight in order to get that effect. So, um, so I think the GLP-1s are the nearest thing to anything we've ever seen that is a preventative treatment. I just, I also want to piggyback and add, um, just if anyone's listening in terms of weight loss, sometimes it's just a little bit of weight. You know, some people might be like, we see differences in just five to 10 pounds of weight loss. Doesn't mean it's all going to go away, but you'd certainly see positive advantages just with a small amount of weight loss, which is a good goal as opposed to saying, I, I don't like when people say I'm going to lose a hundred pounds. Like I, maybe you need to, and that's your long-term goal, but you can't think about that as your day-to-day -day thing. You have to make small behavioral changes in order to reach smaller goals at a time. So uh, I always think with weight loss, small goals are best, personally. I agree entirely. And even 10 pounds for an average human, which is not a lot, and that can be done in a period of five or six months uh, with discipline and maybe a little walking. But um, that has a profound impact on your quality of life. All right, I want to go to segment four. In the quest for professional success, balancing work and personal life are paramount. Burnout often stemming from an imbalance, can lead to emotional exhaustion and a sense of detachment from work. 
It's crucial to develop strategies for maintaining harmony in our lives. Key to preventing burnout is recognizing it. Symptoms include physical and emotional fatigue, reduced feelings of accomplishment, and a loss of personal identity. These indicators should not be overlooked, as they are often signs of deeper issues like stress or even depression. A foundational step towards balance is prioritizing self-care. This begins with ensuring adequate sleep, essential for rejuvenation of both body and mind. Additionally, physical well-being encompassing exercise and nutrition forms a critical part of this equation. Setting boundaries is also essential. It involves delineating clear lines between work and personal time, thus ensuring neither encroaches excessively on the other. Regular breaks throughout the workday can prevent the buildup of stress and maintain productivity. Building a support network, whether professional or personal, provides an outlet for discussing challenges and seeking advice. Knowing when to seek help is crucial. Sometimes professional assistance may be necessary to navigate through burnout. Finally, understanding and managing work demands are key. This includes realistic goal setting and seeking organizational support when needed. By adopting these strategies, we can achieve a healthier work-life balance, steer clear of burnout, and lead more fulfilling lives. Michelle, can you kick us off with your POP acronym and give us a little bit more context about the joy choice? Sure. Thank you. Um, so an ecosystem, our life is an ecosystem of so many different elements. And the question is, how do we take care of ourselves in sustainable ways when there are so many pieces and parts and people? So um, again, the joy choice is uh, a behavioral strategy that is supported by science where we, when we get to a decision point and we can't do what we plan to do, we're not motivated to do what we plan to do, again, the book was really about um, eating and exercise decision-making, but this um, idea really can apply to almost anything. When we get to a decision point, what do we do if we don't have the energy or drive or simply um, can't do what we had intended? We need a strategy for that. And so the joy choice, instead of thinking in all or nothing ways, oh, I can't follow my diet to a T. I can't get to the gym like I planned, or I can't, you know, whatever it is. We've been socialized because um, traditionally approaches to changing the way we eat and to exercise and come out of a medical paradigm. We've been taught to think in very prescriptive ways about these behaviors. And what that does, if you think about it, a prescription is very much um, whether it's a medication prescription or an exercise, a traditional exercise prescription, it's do this, take this amount, and it's very much, it's precise. And so we've been taught as a society to have this precision around our behavior. Well, that leads to all or nothing thinking, which we've already talked about how that gets in people's way. So that was, that's the context um, for creating the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing so we can stay the path. It doesn't mean we make the same choice every time. It means we just keep going and we maintain momentum and sustain it. Pop 
is a playful decision tool that I created to help people in the moment um, make that perfect and perfect joy choice. And POP stands for pause. And anyone who you know does mindfulness or reads any Buddhist literature knows the wisdom of pause has been around for a long time. I just borrowed it for the acronym. We pause because that is what gives us a moment to regroup and harness our cognition so that then we can do the second part of pop, which is O, open up our options and play. And by framing it, um, the second step in playful ways, we cultivate curiosity, which we know is a positive emotion, which other research suggests helps us broaden our thinking and creativity. So that will help us come up with alternatives when we can't do the all. Um, and then the final P and pop is pick the joy choice. And what that would be for anyone, for any person is gonna be different from another person. And what it might be for me on any day or any moment would be different than it is another day where the circumstances are different, my energy level's different. So the goal of POP is to give people a playful acronym that hopefully they can learn and remember in the moment um, and support their executive functioning too um, so that they can recall it when they need to to use it. Manisha, you've been very open about mental health and dealing with depression. What is your advice for people, like strategies for managing stress to prevent burnout? Um, I have found, well, first I just want to say that um, I've struggled with depression and anxiety in a very serious way uh, my entire life. And uh, at 45, I was actually finally diagnosed with bipolar two, and I'm on appropriate antipsychotic meds and it's shocking uh, what it's like to live without the static in my head. And I always like to talk about this because people don't talk about this and professionals are afraid to let people know. And I, I want people to know they're not alone because I think that's a big component of um, getting burnt out <laughs> as well is just feeling like all you have in life is your work. And so what I would tell people is look at why you're working like when when you're heading towards burnout um what is it that is motivating you and i found four buckets small t traumas things that happened to us before age 25 that drive us to seek acceptance um in the form of work uh cultural norms that where we live in a society that tells us what we do is who we are and what we're worth as a human societal influences where we see all kinds of stuff and easy access to credit means people can live beyond their means and we don't know if they do and so we look at them and think i should be able to have that so we work more um and then there's uh, evolutionary biological factors that go into this kind of the simplest way to think about it is we used to be able to provide all of our maslow hierarchy of our needs with our bodies and brains right if you threw all of us into the woods we would have been able to forage for food create shelter survive today where do we get our core needs met well we spend money to get basic food housing shelter so the very act of, of working has a, a 
a evolutionary biological imperative to it in some ways. And so what I, as I was um, researching monies and that, that is what really jumped out at me is that so much of our workaholic behavior can come in different combinations at different stages in our lives from those four buckets and understanding that can really help you change your behavior because I can't tell you how many times people said to me over the last 30 years, you're a workaholic, you you need hobbies, you need friends, you need this, you need to lose weight, you need, I heard it, it was correct, I knew it, but I couldn't change. And the reason I couldn't change, it's different for everyone, but the reason I couldn't change is I didn't understand the underlying factors that drove me to use work and push myself to burn out um, as a solution for dealing with other issues. And it wasn't until I did that, that I could then adopt all of the things that we know are good for mental health, sleep, exercise, community, time in nature, healthy uh, eating habits. So Mike, you said you're wired differently than most, because yeah, I think a lot of, um, a lot of people on the hedge fund trading desk, it can be stressful. And they need to find like some outlet to relax and to refresh. Do you I, really yeah. not need to do that? Um, look, I, running a hedge fund is uh, successfully for most uh, 20 years is uh, my trader put it to me best. Uh, you're, you're essentially in a foxhole every day and everyone's shooting at you. And uh, about 90% of your brethren around you die, meaning they don't make it and uh, professionally. And so that is something very difficult to deal with mentally, um, even as a survivor over time, uh, you know, at the shop that I spent most of my time with a shop called Millennium, uh, the fatality rate, meaning the dismissal rate is uh, probably about 75% over a five year period. And, um, and in fact, they, it was so bad. There was this, this, on my floor, there was this group to my left and it's called a desk. And the desk is like 20 foot long. It's a 20 foot long desk. And all the people work on the same desk all together on a long desk. And uh, that the, every year it changed for about five years. Uh, and it was even more than that. I just lost track. And so I, I, I stopped, uh, I, I determined that that desk was cursed. And I wouldn't allocate my cerebral teraflops to remember who the person was. So mm -hmm. it was just, I just called him Bob. And that was the right thing to do because Bob came and went several times before actually the whole time that I was there, it was just a revolving desk for about 10 years straight. Uh, and that's, but that, that's, that's what, now you don't get into the business knowing that you really were naive. We think that yeah, I'm doing this job. It's fine. But the failure rate, that burnout rate comes with that failure rate. So it is a very high stress job, uh, which was right for me because I really enjoyed that challenge. Uh, and it didn't really bother me when I was on the firing line all the time. But what it did do is open up my eyes, especially because I look at all the medical information there is in every trial that has failed and succeeded and every drug that has failed and succeeded over 20 years. And that mental health is a serious clinical issue. And it wasn't something I was aware of. 
um, until looking at the data. And we even have some of it, uh, cases of it in my family. Uh, and, and it's something people that don't have a mental health issue, depression and other things, it's a little bit foreign to them because they don't quite understand it. But we all have to be very empathetic, I believe, because these feelings that others have, especially with a major depressive disorder, it is very real. And there is great biology behind it. Uh, we were designed to be anxious and upset and fat because our biggest threat was to be eaten by other animals or starve to death. And we have 2 million years of evolution around that. So what are you going to do? Always be hungry, pack on weight and be afraid. That's it. That's our biology. And, and honestly, those that don't suffer from some form of uh, depressive disorder, they're the anomaly. I believe they're the anomaly. It's, it's a very small percentage of humans and the vast majority do have issues time to time. Um, I'm sure that I even have, look, I don't know that I have it, but my wife tells me I do. So maybe it's true uh, that even I would have these sort of issues from time to time. And, uh, and it, it's very real. It's very material. I've had people on my team with this and I have lost two good friends to uh, self-medication. And this happens very often where they have a great ego or a great will not to be depressed or suffer from other issues. And they self-medicate with uh, frequently illegal drugs. And I lost two very dear friends to that. Uh, and it usually occurs in your late 40s. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened in uh, recent years. Uh, these, this self-medication and the unwillingness to go to the doctor. And even one of them was a doctor. Uh, very, very smart, brilliant people that still suffer from this. So it's not limited to just a few or the poor or the stressed out at work. There's millions and millions that are affected by this. And I have great empathy for them. And all that I can say, what I'll reiterate in talking about choosing joy, which is so very important is to choose joy. Take the effort to find what you want to do and do it. And if it is carpentry, wonderful, do it, go big. If it's electronics, go do that. You don't have to go to college to be incredibly successful at something you love. And I think that that is something for two generations now has been drilled into our children's head through a machine is that you must go to college in order to be successful. Otherwise you're a failure total nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you an example. My son who is 16 years old is potentially facing a situation where he may not go to college um, uh, right away. Uh, there's other things that he's, he's actively involved in. And I'm, I agree. And I support him. And it's not that he doesn't like school. He loves school. He just has another opportunity that's staring him in the face. And it's one of those things where you either you say yes and you go for it or you say no. And that door is shut forever. He's so these are choices that we, yes, he's a race car driver. <laughs> so, yeah, I, OK, bad parent right here. Fine. <laughs> no. Jill, it's your fault. All right. <laughs> so. Uh, now she's a wonderful mother. Um, 
but that's what he's faced now. And I, I'm, I'm fretting with this. He's a very good student, but, uh, but you only get to do certain things in life a handful of times. And we have to be cognizant that when you open new doors, you do sometimes shut others and often you do. But I would encourage you, especially at a young age, to go chase it. And even at an older age, if you're unhappy, go chase it. Find out what you want to do. And that will prevent burnout. I believe that people largely burn out because they're stuck doing they, something they don't want to do. Find your passion. All right, let's bring it home and go to the last segment. As medical advancements extend our lifespans, savvy investors and planners must adapt to the evolving healthcare landscape. This shift presents new opportunities and challenges in both investing and personal health planning. For investors, staying abreast of healthcare trends is crucial. Emerging sectors like telemedicine, personalized medicine, and biotechnology are reshaping healthcare delivery, offering potential investment opportunities. Diversifying into healthcare stocks or funds, especially those focusing on senior care, pharmaceuticals, and medical technology, can be a strategic move. Personal investment strategies must also consider extended lifespans. Planning for longer retirement years means assessing healthcare costs over a prolonged period. This requires a balance between securing adequate coverage and maintaining financial resources effectively. In conclusion, the intersection of healthcare and financial planning is increasingly important. Staying informed about healthcare trends and aligning investment strategies with the reality of living longer enables informed decisions, securing financial stability and preparedness for future healthcare needs. Toby, earlier you described that it's pretty binary. You're either eating right or you're not. One of the things that stands in our way is that we get busy, right? Like life gets in the way. We don't have time. You're a mom to three kids. Does it frustrate you as a nutritionist that like America cannot eat better? It seems like we're always making the wrong choices. It's, you know, something that's, it's, not a black and white thing. And I always say one of the things that I've been discussing a lot lately is I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people that are basically black and white. Let's take added sugar, for example. So they're like, I can't have any added sugar in the diet. And I, I think that's exactly what sets someone up for failure when it's an all or nothing. I think, Michelle, you hit on that. But if you actually even look at the dietary guidelines, they even tell you, you can't. It's impossible to get zero. You can only, you know, the lowest you could go is two and 3%. And so sometimes, you know, when I develop my recipes too, I do add added sugar, maple syrup or honey, because you have to understand where you can use these, these flavor enhancers. So for example, let's say you wanted a bowl of oatmeal. It doesn't taste so great on its own. You do need some sort of sweetness in there, or you can have it savory, but let's say most people like it sweet. So utilizing a teaspoon, two teaspoons in there of some sort of added sugar, to me, that's okay. You're topping it with fruit. You're topping it with um, nuts. And added sugar cereal, like the cereals with sugar. I'm okay with that too. Um, and research actually shows that the added sugar from cereal is by far not, it's number five on the list or six or tied for fifth. It's not number one, two, three, or four over there. There are other things. And research shows that you're eating that cereal with a fruit and with milk. So you have three food groups right there. 
So is yes, you can find lower added sugar cereals and there's a variety available. You can mix the higher added sugars, but there is a flexible way to eat and no one way is correct to eat. You have to find the flexible way that is for you. And that is the most important thing to learn. And guilt associated in this society with how we're eating and the black and whiteness of it is terrible and takes a terrible toll on, on youngsters and even adults, um, you know, of how they should or shouldn't eat. Um, and so when you do seek the help of a registered dietitian nutritionist, sometimes we go by RD or RDN, they're the same thing. Um, but, you know, you need to find one that really works with you. And if that, you know, a lot of people used to come to me, please give me that meal plan. Where's that meal plan? Hand it out, the 1800. No, I don't give you a meal plan because you're, you, you don't like ch chicken, let's say, and you're allergic to this that's on there. No, it's not for you. You need your own meal plan. You, you're your own person. Um, and I think that is something that, you know, some people are starting to think about, think about enjoying your food as opposed to, um, you know, just kind of eating everything that's in front of you. And, and you know, we're really evolving and there still is so many uh, misconceptions uh, about about food and nutrition out there. Um, I'm not even going to get into the world of supplementation. Um, that is very high up and, and forthcoming right now um, with health conditions and supplementation and unregulation of that that whole thing. But um, you know, th there's a lot going on. There's a lot that's coming up too. I want to ask Mike or Manisha, since Manisha sometimes wears an analyst hat, like. What are megatrends in the healthcare industry or sector that investors should be paying attention to for the next five, 10, 20 years? You're Manisha, muted, you're muted. I'm gonna to defer to Mike on this one, totally. Okay. Well, as you know, I am, um, uh, I am the PM of the Pink Fund and we're in a remarkable spot in healthcare. I was, I did drug development, uh, mostly in gene therapy for my first leg of science. And I was very lucky to have brought uh, two different drugs to the clinic uh, from, you know, from con whiteboard concept uh, into humans. Um, and, and part of me, what got me into doing investing was that I knew that both of those uh, studies were going to fail, uh, not because I just knew intuitively from the efficacy and so forth. And I was about 28 years old at the time and, and discovered that, uh, holy cow, you can you can actually have a job where you're betting on those things. Well, I bet that my stuff's going to fail. And, uh, and it did. <laughs> so, but there was a company behind it and there was a trade to be had. Uh, now that was 25 years ago. Uh, what has happened since then is an absolute renaissance in development. Whereas the things that I did 25 years ago were incredibly manual. And I would be up till 2, 3 a.m. in the morning in the laboratory, switching plates and heating things and running uh, PCR reactions. Um, and it was it was slave labor. Oh my goodness, it was awful. It was like what Ed Edison said, it's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Well, that was absolutely true then. That is no longer the case now. Uh, there's a myriad of machines that can do a thousand times my efforts now. And that 
has led us to a golden age in drug discovery and development. And the same goes for med tech also. It's not just hips and knees, it's a million other things to treat just about everything. And we're just at the beginning of this golden age of discovery and development. When I started, my concept to humans would usually take seven to eight years to get into a human. Now, you just saw under duress what can happen when we have a pandemic. They went from concept to human to market in a span of five months. Not that that will be done all the time, but the point is, is that the timeline from an idea to human has been compressed dramatically because of the tools that have been implemented, where it is preclinical animal models that are custom made to mimic humans. And so we can basically ferret out the high toxicity uh, drugs that are in development very, very quickly. Uh, and, and so when drugs phase three clinical trials, which is the end stage, the success rate is extremely high. I mean, these things used to fail all the time uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And now they very rarely fail because there's an awful lot of legwork that can be done now to take the guesswork out. And that's really led us to uh, an explosion of drugs to treat so many things. I mean, I, I mean, I could bring up many, many examples, but just this one is uh, the drugs to treat diabetes now, entirely new mechanisms. Uh, beforehand, we had two types of drugs, a pill and an antibody, and the antibodies were new. Now we have antisense therapy, gene therapy, viral-based gene therapy, um, in addition to uh, antibodies that target multiple sites that are completely different than anything that occur, uh, occurs in the human. Multi-targeted antibodies, these are amazing things. And there's so much more that's in the pipeline of innovation, and we are just getting started. So if you would ask, do I need to be in healthcare in my portfolio? Absolutely you do. It's 17% of the economy and you have an aligned interest in that nobody wants to age uh, without grace. Everybody wants to live forever. And most are willing at the end, essentially, to pay anything for it and everything for it. So it is, all the interests are aligned for healthcare to continue growing. Uh, and um, and might I suggest that you do it uh, through pink <laughs> and do it <laughs> and uh, and I'm not allowed to talk about uh, publicly what the pink performance is uh, because it requires a ton of disclaimers. But um, what I can say is that. Uh, my competition uh, that is running alternate funds that I compete against based on performance are very upset. <laughs> is that well said? That? So, yes. I'm not the SEC, so I, I cannot speak for them, but it okay. sounds good to me. <laughs> Michelle, any closing thoughts from you? Gosh, you know, this conversation was such a wonderful integration of so many different perspectives and experiences and expertise. So I, I can't say that I have any parting golden words of wisdom other than, you know, it was really fun to be here and, and meet everyone and, and partake in this conversation. Thanks for inviting me, Andy. Well, I want to thank all the panelists for joining for this episode. 
And I appreciate you spending your time because we did go a little bit long. So I will make this really, really quick. I think that health is a strategic investment in wealth. We covered that. I loved Michelle's uh, joy choice. And really it's about like setting the small goals. You don't have to be perfect. It's just moving in the right direction and having that mindset uh, is very important. Um, I love that follow your passion, figure out what it is that you're passionate about and do something that you enjoy. So you have the option to work well beyond 80. Um, and then I, I just loved all the discussion about how we can eat better, what my plate should look like and how we can do it sustainably. Um, longevity, I think is a thing. And Many of us will be living longer. Our kids are going to be living longer. So we need to invest wisely and do our financial planning. So I want to thank Michelle, Manisha, Toby, and Mike for joining. Please follow Michelle. You can find her at michelleseeger.com. You can check out her books. I think that she has like a, a quiz on there where you can do some kind of a, an assessment Manisha Takor, moneyzen.com. Uh, Toby Amador, you can find her at tobyamadornutrition.com. And Mike Taylor, he advertised his pink ETF. You can also follow his tweets at twitter.com, Mike underscore Taylor 1972. Uh, thanks everybody for listening and watching. Make sure that you join us next week. We have episode 17, The Investor's Journey. Andy's first watch acquisition. And we're going to bring back former Anthrax guitarist turned master watchmaker Dan Spitz. He'll be back. Uh, this will be Wednesday, December 13th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until next time, do something that scares you because that's where the magic happens.